Good morning. Welcome North Sub family and guests here worshiping with us this morning and welcome to those who are homesick or traveling who are joining us online. I'm Tim, one of the pastors here and I want to take a minute before today's sermon to make sure everybody knows about this connection tool we use called Realm. Uh, who's using Realm presently? Most of us are, right? So uh, we want to get everybody on there. So about three years ago, we stopped printing bulletins, we try to keep announcements down, but we want you to stay in the loop. So it was about a year and a half ago now that we launched something called Realm. It's an app on your phone, so if you're trying to download it, it looks maybe something like this, and you'd go and download that for free. It's also available on, our com on, the, on the computer through our website. Uh, it's called Realm Connect. And what we do there is we, we, what we put on Realm as a church is only for our congregation, so it's not public. Um, and it's really handy in several ways. You've got a church directory on there that you can look up folks in the church and, and send them some communication. Uh, church news gets put out there, just one per day, one item per day. And many of those things show up in our uh, Monday and Thursday emails, but some of them don't. Uh, so the Nottenmachers had a baby, and the, here's the link to the meal train if you want to bring them a meal. Congratulations, by the way. Um, yeah. That's something that will show up on Realm that isn't going to be blasted to the whole world, but for our church family, we want to see that and celebrate that with them and be able to uh, give them a meal when they need it. So church news, giving is on Realm, so just real easy, just a couple clicks to do your, uh, do your giving, simplifies the giving process. Summary, if you aren't on Realm with us, uh, you risk missing out on some key happenings in the life of our church. So download that app, access it on our computer, reach out to the church admin staff if you have any problems setting that up uh, or getting signed in. Glad you're here with us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. In the mid-1800s, when Charles Blondin came to town, everybody wanted to be there. Everybody wanted to see him in action, the tightrope walker who crossed Niagara Falls on a rope. That's the length of three football fields, by the way, 160 feet above the water. And then he did it again blindfolded. And then he did it again in a sack. And then again pushing a wheelbarrow. And again on stilts, again with his manager on his back, that's this picture. Again, while stopping to cook and eat an omelet halfway across Niagara Falls. And again, standing on a chair, but with only one of the chair legs balanced on the rope. The skill of Charles Blondin was unmatched. So, thought experiment. Imagine. You've just brought your family or friends out to watch Blondin pull off one of these amazing tightrope walks. I don't know where he'd do it around here. Maybe it'd be from the top of the steeple to Chick-fil-A drive through window and back, right? With a wheelbarrow, okay? So right before he gets up on the rope and we're all kind of hanging out here watching, he says, hey everybody, what do you think? Do you think I can get across Lake Cook Road to Chick-fil-A and back with this wheelbarrow? And you and me and everybody else are like, yeah, you can. Let's see it, right? And then he points right at you, right specifically at you. And he says, all right, you're up. Hop in the wheelbarrow. 
It's that moment, maybe, when you realize that there's a difference between believing in Charles Blondin and believing in Charles Blondin. You know what I mean? Right? Like in your head, you're fully convinced. But to put your life on the line for that belief, that's, that's a different deal. In our scripture text today, Jesus challenges us regarding whether we are the Jesus fans who say, yeah, Jesus, I believe you can do it while remaining at a safe distance ourselves, or whether we have the sort of belief in him that compels us to actually climb into the wheelbarrow, so to speak. Would you turn with me to John chapter 4, verse 43, if you haven't already? you got Bibles in the seat in front of you, if you want to grab one. Uh, today's scripture text is the third installment in our fall series entitled, The One and Only Son. We're looking this fall at particular stories from John's gospel in which Jesus either performs a sign that symbolically reveals something about who he is, or Jesus makes a statement, an I am statement that metaphorically sheds light on some aspect of his nature. So signs and statements. The last two weeks, we were in John chapter 2, where we saw back-to-back stories of Jesus first turning water into wine to keep a wedding party going, and then Jesus turning over tables in the temple in order to cleanse a house of prayer that had been turned into a marketplace. We noted in those two signs how they together demonstrate that Jesus will sometimes bring joy and abundance into the empty places in our lives. And then at other times, he will turn over the tables and flip our lives upside down. Between those two stories in John chapter 2 and today's story at the end of John chapter 4, Jesus has spent time in the region called Samaria, where he has seen incredible ministry success. If you read the first half of John 4, a whole town there in Samaria has pretty much put their faith in Jesus, despite Samaritans pretty much being generally regarded as despised enemies of Jewish folks like Jesus. Now today, at the end of chapter 4, Jesus is going to return to his own people, so to speak, to his home turf among Jewish folks. And after what he's done publicly in Jerusalem and Samaria now, we're intrigued as readers, how is Jesus going to be received back home? We'll go about it like this today. I'll first read the story with comment, and then I'll wrap it up with four observations. Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 43 of John chapter 4. After two days, he left there for Galilee. There refers to the town of Sychar in Samaria. So the events of our story today take place after spending two days in the town where the woman at the well was from. It's been a resounding success. Despite major barriers, including ethnic animosity that could have gotten in the way, this whole town has become convinced that Jesus really is the Savior of the world, in their own words. Now Jesus is leaving that place of success. How's he going to be treated back home? Well, John's answer is a little bit confusing. Says Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Okay, so we're expecting Jesus to receive no honor uh, back home in Jewish territory in Galilee. But then, 
when they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they also had gone to the festival. Wait, so John just said, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, he, in the very next sentence, says, when they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Which is it, right? Is Jesus welcomed back home, or does he get no honor? The short answer, I'm convinced, is that John intentionally sets up a tension like this. In, at the front end of this story is like this giant neon arrow pointing us, pointing out to us that this is precisely the question that he wants us to wrestle with and focus on in the story he's about to tell. Like, is Jesus welcomed back home or not? That's, it's complicated, as, G, as John suggests. So aim your attention there, he's telling us. According to verse 45, in one sense, Jesus is welcomed. They, they've seen some miracles, right? And they're like, ooh, Jesus is back. But in another sense, like verse 44 emphasizes, he ultimately isn't honored at all. So flag that tension for now. We'll be able to make more sense of that in a few minutes. Let's keep reading. Verse 46. He went again to Cana of Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. Remember that story from a couple weeks ago? A bridegroom in Cana narrowly escaped social disaster when Jesus miraculously provided the equivalent of hundreds of bottles of top quality wine. Now here's the presenting crisis in today's passage. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son, since he was about to die. Okay, is this official Jewish or not? John doesn't say. How much does this official know about Jesus? John doesn't say. Is, Je is Jesus the only one that this official is reaching out to for help? Or is Jesus one of many paths he's exploring simultaneously in his last-ditch efforts to save his son's life? John doesn't say. All we know is that this official has some level of belief that Jesus can work miracles. And so he comes to Jesus in desperation. Jesus' response is surprising, jarring even. Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Harsh, no? Strikes me that way. Reminds us maybe of back in chapter 2 when Mary made that request and Jesus responds, woman, what does this have to do with you and me? Or in Mark 7 when a desperate mom makes a request and Jesus responds, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. We read this and we're like, Jesus, here's a desperate man who loves his dying son, and when he comes to you, this is what you have to say to him? But, like Mary in John 2, like the desperate mom of Mark 7, this official boldly runs through the yellow light. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. He's undeterred. He doesn't address Jesus' statement about signs and wonders, just reiterates that he's serious about his request that Jesus come heal his boy. What's Jesus going to do? Here it is, verse 50. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. 
Did you catch that there? So, so unlike so many other times when Jesus does come down to where someone is to heal them in person, in this case, Jesus doesn't actually go with the official. Instead, he pronounces healing from a distance this time. Why? Well, remember what John flagged for us at the outset of this passage as the major issue. Remember, this, remember what this is about. It's about whether the people of Jesus' home country welcome him or not. Or, they, or whether they dishonor him. Going back to verse 44 and 45, right? It's about whether they're in it for the signs and wonders. Or if they're willing to believe even without the signs and wonders. According to verse 48. So think about it. What better way to find out whether this official really believes in Jesus or is just looking for signs and wonders than this, right? Then refusing to go with him and instead healing from afar. By doing so, Jesus prevents this official from witnessing a sign and wonder. And as such, there are only two ways this can go now at this point in the story. If, on the one hand, at the official's core, he's just a signs and wonders guy, if that's what's truest about him, Jesus' response here is going to frustrate him. Right? He'll be miffed at missing the show. Or he'll doubt that Jesus can perform a long-distance healing. This won't be good enough for him, in other words. But if, on the other hand, at the official's core, he's become a Jesus guy before he's a signs and wonders guy, then he won't need the first-hand miracle show. He'll take Jesus at his word and be on his way. See the test that Jesus has set up here? Let's find out how he does with the test. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. That short sentence there at the end of verse 50 is a big deal in this passage. There hasn't been any visible sign yet. Yet the man believes. He doesn't push Jesus to give him anything more. He just takes Jesus at his word and heads for home. Verse 51. While he was still going down, his servants met him, saying that his boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed, along with his whole household. This is a pretty awesome and joyful story. And any of us who have had a seriously ill loved one can imagine this father's absolute delight at this news that he gets along the way, right? But for me, the language used here raises a question. Namely, when exactly does this official come to believe? Because verse 50 said he believed, right? But if you look, verse 53 also says, so he himself believed. So which is it? Does he come to believe here at verse 53 or back at verse 50? That's the thing about belief, isn't it? Don't most of us experience stages in our belief? Haven't many of us first experienced a day when we became convinced intellectually that the wheelbarrow could hold us, so to speak, on the tightrope? only to experience another day sometime after that when we actually climbed into the wheelbarrow. This official already believed in some sense by verse 50. 
we look back at that. He had to believe in Jesus in order to take him at his word and go home. But this undeniable confirmation that follows in verses 51 to 53, that the healing had taken place at the exact moment when Jesus had pronounced it the day before, this makes the official's faith richer and surely plays a role in the rest of his family deciding that they're also going to put their faith in Jesus. So John wraps up the passage like this. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. No, not the second total sign of Jesus' career. According to verse 45, he's performed signs in Jerusalem too. This is specifically the second sign that took place in Galilee. Okay, so that's the story. Now, we've read through just four brief observations. I think each of these has implications for us today. First, Jesus continues to demonstrate in this passage that a central feature of his work is to rescue from the brink of death. Jesus continues to demonstrate that a central feature of his work is to rescue from the brink of death. Remember the wedding in Cana? Back at the wedding, the party was all but dead, and the bridegroom's social standing was all but dead. He let the wine run out, party foul of all party fouls, yet Jesus rescued that wedding from the brink of death and that bridegroom from the brink of social death. Jesus does something similar in today's passage, but with higher stakes. The official son, near death, verse 47 says he's about to die. Verse 49 says death seems imminent. Yet Jesus is ready to rescue from the brink of death once again. And I think that's more than just an incidental connection between these two passages. Because John actually goes out of his way to tie the two stories together in several ways. As though the wedding and this story are part one and part two. Do you notice that? So if you take a quick look at verse 46. John reminds us, hey, this same town, Cana, remember what happened here? And then verse 54, he says, hey, this is the second Galilean sign, as if to say, hey, remember the first one, don't you? It seems John wants us to understand this new sign, the healing of the boy, as something as a furthering of the first one that also took place in Cana, reaffirmation that, yes, Jesus can and does rescue from the brink of death. This is a chance for reflection here for us, I think, namely... What aspect of your life is presently at the brink of death? Is it your career that's on life support? Your marriage, your finances, your faith? Or, like it was for this official, is it literally a loved one on the brink of death? Do you know that even the brink of death becomes a place of hope when Jesus shows up? rescuing in such circumstances it's a central feature of his work second observation Jesus' work of deliverance is made available to all sorts of people if they believe his work of deliverance is made available to all sorts of people if they will just believe uh, let's review whom Jesus has been rescuing so far in John's gospel earlier in this chapter it was some Samaritans starting with a Samaritan woman outcast of all outcasts and that taught us, okay, Jesus has a heart for those on the margins of society. But then we might start to pigeonhole him there as though, okay, these people out here on the margins, these are the people Jesus is interested in saving. Wait, but, but then here comes Jesus to the rescue of a rich guy. A powerful, 
distinguished royal official, well-to-do enough to employ multiple servants, according to verse 51. And in this juxtaposition of a Samaritan woman and a royal official in the same chapter, we learn an important lesson, if, if we're going to be faithful agents of Christ's healing here on the North Shore. And it's this. While Jesus is not impressed by those withstanding, he isn't deterred by them either. While Jesus isn't impressed by those with money, power, titles, standing, he isn't deterred by them either. Yes, he does seem to have a particular fondness for the marginalized. They seem to disproportionately turn to him in faith. But some Christians today, while correctly noting Jesus' ministry to the marginalized, come to despise most residents of suburbs like ours. These Christians, we can start to actually look with disdain on the wealthy. Right? I remember seminary friends asking me six years ago, Tim, how can you seriously be considering staying and pastoring here among all this affluence? But people of means need Jesus too. And if we can't see the image of God in those with societal standing, if we write them off, we're not following our Savior who refused to write them off. And I guess this second reflection moves me toward two applications, each of which has like a, a head side and a tail side. Right? First application question flowing out of this observation. On a personal level, has, has your societal standing or lack thereof made you imagine that Christ's healing is for someone else, not for you? Has your societal standing made you imagine that Christ's healing is for someone else, not for you? And, the, and there's a heads and tails side. The heads side of that question is this. Like, have you looked around at North Shore wealth and success and said, I'm, I'm, uh, those are the sorts of people God must favor, not me. My life has been one of struggle and lack. I can never escape the margins. Jesus must not want to have anything to do with me. If that's you, friend, no. Time and time again. Jesus goes to the poor, to the broken, to the despised. And they are so often the ones who do respond to him in faith because they're the ones often most willing to come before Jesus with empty hands. But for someone else here, it might be the tail side, actually. Like, have you, have you looked in the mirror at your own wealth and success relative to others and said, man, I'm not a good person? While others have devoted their lives to helping people, I've devoted mine to making money and treating myself to life's selfish pleasures. Jesus must not want to have anything to do with me. Friend, that's equally wrong. Here's a royal official, well-to-do, a participant in an oppressive system, yet Jesus loves him and chooses to answer his cries and heal his son. Oh, and, and in doing so, to heal him too, the official himself, spiritually speaking. So hear this loud and clear, whether you're rich or poor, esteemed or despised, Jesus is healing, it's for you, for you. But there's a second application, I think, that flows out of this second observation, flows out of that first more personal question about Christ's healing being for you, and it's this, have you withheld the offer of Christ's healing from someone thinking it can't be for that sort of person? Have you withheld the offer of Christ's healing from someone, thinking it 
It can't be for that sort of person. Again, this could be the head side, which is withholding Christ's healing from someone because they're poor. Or it could be the tail side, withholding Christ's healing from someone because they're rich. The reality is that you and I don't know whom God desires to draw to himself in faith. To put it differently, we can't predict who will respond to Jesus' offer of salvation by climbing into the wheelbarrow. Actually, it's often people who surprise us. So it's our job to offer his salvation liberally and indiscriminately. To the despised and marginalized people with whom we cross paths, but also to the rich and powerful who seem to have it all together. Jesus' work of deliverance is made available to all sorts of people, if they'll just believe, if you'll just believe. Third observation. Some fans of Jesus' miracles, they superficially welcome him without much interest in who he actually is. We might call him fans. Some fans of Jesus' miracles superficially welcome him without much interest in who he actually is. Let's circle back to those confusing first few verses, right? We had a prophet has no honor in his home country, but then the Galileans welcomed him. Right? So how can people simultaneously welcome Jesus and dishonor him? Verse 48 revealed how, didn't it? Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. In other words, the people at home for Jesus aren't like the people of Samaria who believed in mass without seeing signs and wonders. At home, people are stuck on craving signs and wonders. Their belief isn't the same kind of belief that he had found in Samaria, right? at least in this one town in Samaria. And this, this deficiency actually has already been brought up by John. Way back in chapter 2, after the temple cleansing, here's, here's, what, here's what John told us. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, since he knew them all. And because he didn't need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus knows humans well enough to know what kind of faith this is. While they may be believing on his name on some level because they've seen some miracles, Jesus knows better than to think that that's going to translate into real lasting faith for many of them when Jesus starts making demands of them, right? So, so he starts to, he refuses to entrust himself to mere fans who cheer, we believe you can push the wheelbarrow, but then who won't actually get into the wheelbarrow themselves. And there are parallels, I think between the signs and wonders crowd in Jesus' day and a particular brand of North Shore Christianity today. Here's, here's what I mean. Here's the profile. Right? Many of us have slipped into this. Jesus? Yeah, yeah, Jesus, right? I, I love showing up to the Jesus show. Jesus, he's been a source of values for me. Jesus is where I turn to get my kids on the straight and narrow. Super helpful with that. Doing the Jesus thing, that's where I found my friends, right? So, so if there's a church that'll make the Jesus show entertaining and engaging in such a way that it encourages me and makes me laugh and doesn't cut into too much of my Sunday and my kids love it, I'm there. At least there's, unless there's nothing more entertaining going on. But guess what? As soon as I encounter a Jesus who starts to make demands of me, just to be clear, I'm not that kind of Jesus person, right? I've got respect for people who are that religious. Don't get me wrong. That's just not for me. 
Unless you people are entertained, you won't believe. I wonder if that's what Jesus might say to Christians on the North Shore today. Unless you people are entertained, you won't believe. What about you? Are you just a fan of Jesus for as long as he keeps up the feel-good show? Are you ready to climb into the wheelbarrow to be carried wherever he takes you? Final observation, number four. The faith Jesus seeks is a faith that takes him at his word. The faith Jesus seeks is faith that takes him at his word. Throughout John's gospel, it's a running contrast. Some people believe only because they see. Others take Jesus at his word. It climaxes with that well-known interaction with Thomas in, verse, in chapter 20, right? Jesus says, Thomas, because you've seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. What Jesus is looking for are people who believe apart from seeing signs and wonders. To put it in the words of our passage today. Who are ready to climb into the wheelbarrow just because Jesus says so. And that's what this official is doing in verse 50 when he believes and departs. I guess the official, we could say, eventually sees the miracle. If we can say that's what happens when his servants come with the news and and yes, that news of a sign and a wonder does confirm and strengthen the official's faith in verses 51 to 53. But according to verse 50, he didn't actually need that to believe. Without seeing anything, he began the journey home. Believing only on the basis of Jesus' verbal affirmation that his son would live. And as a result of that faith, that true saving faith, the boy's healing doesn't even end up being the most significant healing that happens this day. The boy, his father, the whole family are eventually healed by grace, through faith. Healed forever from a condition far more fatal than whatever illness the son was originally burdened with. They all come to believe. So the question for us, do we take Jesus at his word? Even when we can't yet see how it's going to turn out for us. Like if Jesus is speaking over you this morning, saying, I've got you. I won't let you go. And he is speaking that over you this morning, by the way. Is that enough for you to walk out of here this morning and to go home trusting that he'll make good on his word? Or... Are you going to remain anxious until you see some sort of visible proof that he's got you? The faith Jesus seeks is faith that takes him at his word. Now, there's a caveat on this final point, and it's this. Optimally, we'll believe without needing to see, just taking Jesus at his word. That said, it's better to believe because we've seen than not to believe at all. Otherwise, why would Jesus do all these signs, right? The text tells us Jesus did these signs to induce belief. He even says a couple times, if you don't believe uh, because of what I'm saying, at least believe because of the works I'm doing. John 10 and John 14, he says that twice. So while we're aiming at a faith that takes Jesus at his word, we want to be careful not to despise a faith that's lesser but still not insignificant that sees first and then says, okay, I guess I don't have a good reason 
to privilege these doubts anymore. Concretely speaking, what would that look like today? Here's one example. If someone were to get miraculously healed in this worship center today, before we leave here, and you were to see that, and then as a result of seeing that, you find yourself believing in Jesus as a result, what we would say to that belief, to that faith that you've exercised, is yes, praise God for your belief. That's better than unbelief, way better. And listen, God might intend to do just that this morning in order to break down the final walls of resistance for someone here, someone watching online. But if that happens, here's the takeaway. Make sure your faith doesn't stay there. That it doesn't remain grounded only on a miracle in and of itself. The signs and wonders, they're never for the sake of signs and wonders. They were always to point us to Jesus, to the one in, uh, in whom our hope will ultimately be found. So let's figure out who this Jesus is who can heal like this, and then let's learn to take him at his word. So to close, if you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, there's no better day than today than to call out to him. You've seen now in this scripture text that Jesus is he's God in the flesh, the one who brings heaven crashing into earth and gives glimpses of a future age in which there will be no more death or sorrow, crying or pain anymore. The healing of this official's son is just a foretaste of what will be pervasive in the eternal kingdom ruled by King Jesus. So it's a glimpse of our future in the present, but it's also a portrait in the physical realm of what Jesus is ultimately doing in the spiritual realm. You and I, all of us, we've been born with a terminal illness called sin. Our death is imminent. In fact, there's a sense in which we're already dead in our sins, yet Jesus steps into our humanity, dies in our place to heal us of those sins, and then in raising again to new life and raising us again to new life with him, he pronounces us to have a clean bill of health so that we can live forever with him. But that's the thing. We become... Well, let's say it this way. We don't become recipients of that gift by standing in the crowd at a safe distance and saying, I believe in you, Jesus. Like they used to for Charles Blondin. We have to actually get in the wheelbarrow, putting our lives on the line based on the assurance of what he says he will do. What if today was that day that Somebody here climbed into that wheelbarrow for the first time. You know how awesome that would be? That you said, Jesus, whatever you say, whether I can understand it or not, whether I can see where it leads or not, I'm in. My life is in your hands. Cry that out to him. That's, that's saving faith. If, on the other hand, you've been in the wheelbarrow for any length of time, so to speak, if you have cried out that prayer to him somewhere along the way, and he has answered by giving you the faith to climb into that wheelbarrow. Whom do you need to invite to join you? I guess to join you in the wheelbarrow. That's what this official did. He went and told his whole family so they could experience the rescue that he had found. You who have been rescued, to whom is God calling you to extend that offer 
of rescue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, and we thank you for his healing touch. That healing touch that has come into the illness in each of our hearts, in many of our hearts, and healed it, cleansed it, purified it, washed it away such that we are pronounced with a clean bill of health, and we get to live in the freedom of life, the abundant life that's only found in Jesus. We pray that we would continue to be a people who trust that when we get in that wheelbarrow, you're going to make good on your word and watch over us and work things out for our good and bring glory to yourself. And when we start to doubt, Lord, please help us to trust once again. Help us even this morning to trust that you do continue to heal spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, and that you have the power to do so even this morning. Help us to trust that in Jesus' name. Amen.